When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, I'm David Haglin, and this is the Slate Audio Book Club. Before we begin, I want to mention our upcoming live show in Seattle. It's the first ever live audio book club. And it's happening at Town Hall on Thursday, February 27th, which is the week of the AWP conference. Hannah Rosen and Dan Coyce from Slate will be joined by Hugh Howey, who is the author of the mega-best-selling science fiction series Wool. And they're going to talk about Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. They're also going to talk about Vonnegut's career more generally and also about fan fiction. Howey is a trendsetter in that he encourages fans to write fan fiction in the Wool universe that he's created and even lets them sell it on Amazon. And this month, Amazon is publishing his own fan fiction set in the universe of Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, so they'll talk about that. They'll talk about Slaughterhouse-Five, and they'll take questions. Tickets are only $10. You can buy them by going to slate.com slash seattleabc. Again, that is slate.com slash seattleabc. So this month, we are discussing Mary McCarthy's 1963 bestseller, The Group. And I am joined by memoirist and poet and former culture editor of Slate, Megan O'Rourke. Hello, Megan. Hi, David. And I'm also joined by Slate editor Emily Bazelon. Hey, Emily. Hey, guys. So The Group is a novel about eight Vassar friends who graduate in 1933, and it focuses on the first, let's see, six years of their post-college lives. Six, seven seven years. years. It famously begins with the wedding of Kay, who is sort of the center of the group, I think, and I believe all three of us had read this book before. So I thought we could talk first about um, what it was like to read this book a second time, whether you enjoyed it more, less, differently. And I'll start with you, Megan. Is this the second time you'd read the book? Yeah, it's the second time, although there are sections I've read probably three or four times, I realized. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would say I enjoyed it more or less. It, it's just different. It's a It's a good book to reread because... I think that rereading it, you can pay much more attention to how McCarthy wrote the book and what the structure of it is, because it is a big, complicated book. I mean, it's a it's a complicated task to try to kind of tell these interwoven stories. I actually just read another novel that's a group of women 
narrated in the collective first person, which is something McCarthy doesn't do, but it almost has that feel. We're kind of like moving seamlessly from the point of views of one character to the next, the next. And that's, I think, you know, was considered both one of the successes and one of the failures of the book when it first came out. And it leads to some risky things. You know, it was really funny. You know, parts of it were so vivid, famously, the get thee to a pessary. I'm misquoting purposefully um, chapter, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, and the chapter before that. And then there were whole sections I'd totally forgotten, like the part about the butler, which I think probably could have gone from yeah. the book. It which feels I like a misstep. It feels like a misstep in the book. And some other sections that just aren't as vivid. But some of the sections I'd forgotten I actually really, really loved and thought were some of the strongest parts of the book and maybe a little less sensational and, and maybe I read less carefully as a 23-year-old reading it. What about you, Emily? Well, I think that the wonderful thing about this book is that it's like a horn of plenty and there are different parts of it that will resonate with you depending on the time you read it in your own life. So when I read it for the first time, I think I had just had children and there is a chapter late on about child rearing and another one about breastfeeding that are completely hilarious and awful. And if you're going through that stage in your life and you're so aware of how judgmental people are and the fads of, you know, everything from bottles to boobs to strollers, it was very evocative. Now that my kids are a little older and I'm older, I think I read it looking back on college more with a kind of nostalgia about one's 20s. And I do think it's amazing how much McCarthy's themes feel relevant and modern. And I couldn't help thinking about Lena Dunham's girls because these young women are right at that age. They're in New York. They're different, but they are types in a way that I think more recent contemporary renditions of that time of life have also strived for. Yeah, it's amazing how many of the same issues and themes are still at play. And as I understand it, Dunham is a fan of this book and even gave it to the other writers on the show as you know an important text for them. And I just learned today that apparently an editor gave it to Candace Bushnell before she wrote Sex in the City and also suggested this is the kind of thing we want to do. So I think the book has had really a huge influence. And it is striking to read it now with some of those things in mind. I read it around the same age as you, Megan. I think I was about 23. Mm-hmm. And obviously girls did not exist. I don't think I had watched Sex in the City at that point. I can't remember when that show started. But now I'm much more conscious of these things that have come in its wake. Mm-hmm. And, and we how... could bring into the conversation Mad Men and this new show Masters of Sex, too, right? In that they are set in the 50s, but with a lot of the kind of attention to period detail and the mixed emotions and strictures about sex that are very relevant to this book, even if it's set 20 years earlier. One thing I was thinking about reading it, too, is, I mean, you could even talk about a book like The Best of Everything. And it comes to mind, I don't know if this is true, but one thing I was thinking about is that there are more books about, well, that's not true. There are books about groups of men, but there is a kind of subgenre, right, that this book is maybe the most literary example of, certainly the most literary example I can think of, that is the kind of book about the group of girls, right? And there were a lot of kind of trashy novels in the 50s and 60s, and I'm thinking of The Best of Everything, which is sort of more of a pot boiler, or maybe a little less literary, we can say, than this book. But there is kind of this whole group, and I had read that same thing about Sex and the City, and, and you can really see the influence in terms of when I was reading this novel, too, I kept thinking, you know, because this is a novel that was both incredibly popular when it came out and won McCarthy rave reviews and also won her a lot of criticism, some of that of a more personal 
natured. Can you talk about that a little bit, Megan? You were talking about Norman Mailer before. Yeah, well, Norman Mailer has this long review that's well worth reading as a kind of literary um, object in its own right, I, I guess I could say, from the New York Review of Books, where he, he keeps talking about it as a lady book. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a sort of fascinating collision of two really different sensibilities. And Kind of maddening, I think, as a woman today to read this review. Well, because his misogyny is really hanging His misogyny out is kind of amazing. <laughs> but then he also says some really interesting and somewhat smart things. One of my favorite lines from it is he's describing the different characters. And he says, finally, there's a real duncey broad who becomes a literary agent. One can't even recall her name. <laughs> <laughs> Libby. Um, Libby. Poor Libby, who is a duncey broad. Um, poor Libby. And the most unsympathetic The most unsympathetic. But one thing, I, what I was just going to, just to finish my thought, was that, you know, this book could almost have been a work of nonfiction. That it's, it's kind of a close, that's what I was bringing up Sex in the City to talk about, is that this sort of close social observation. And her son once described McCarthy as being able to kind of, you know, having a mind which was really interested in like what people were wearing, you know, incredible intellectual mind capable of thinking theoretically, but also very fascinated by the niceties of of the social. And that's one of the things that makes this book so incredible is that on the one hand, it's themes, as you were saying, Emily, it feels so fresh, right? And so contemporary, you know, love, sex, the relationship between these two things, you know, having children, disappointing your parents, all of these things that I think young women, money, all these things that I think young women struggle with today. But it's also really a novel of the 30s in a way. I don't know, David, did you feel like I kept really being like, wow, it's amazing to think that some of these things that people criticize it for maybe are some of the strengths, I think, now, because we really, it does get kind of mired in the everyday, but in a way that gives us a portrait of a time that felt really different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Mad Men comparison is apt, I think, because so this book was published in 63, but is set 30 years earlier. And though it's a period that McCarthy herself lived through at that age, I think she graduated from Vassar in 33, if I'm not mistaken, she is very much looking back on that time and has some distance Mm -hmm. from it and is a close social observer who's also interested in the way that things have changed since then. And so I think she herself has some remove from those kind of... uh, social norms or the expectations that people brought into, for instance, marriage, certainly. And, you know, there's an early chapter in which Dottie loses her virginity to um, this guy, Dick. Who is a dick? Although she she falls for him anyway. Harder than I had remembered. Yeah. Um, It kind of haunts her for the rest of the book, really. But she's, she's terrified. She knows almost nothing in a way that feels very much of its time it would be shocking to realize that someone who just finished college didn't, I mean, it'd be very difficult in this country. You know, and certainly if you went to Vassar, you would know. Well, and Um, certainly there wouldn't be the anxiety today about birth control and this kind of, they keep bringing up the legality of it, you know, and you realize just how new things like birth control were. And that's kind of amazing. And yet at the same time, the dynamic that's established between her and this man. So familiar. Completely familiar. (laughs) And and likewise, the dynamic that evolves between Kay and her husband, Harold. Terrifyingly familiar. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I had forgotten, I have to say. So among the many things I've forgotten about this book is how monstrous he is and becomes. I actually sort of remembered, and so you, one begins the book, and he seems a decent enough sort, but I had this shivering like, premonition of what I was know. going to happen. I know. I feel like maybe we should drill down into some chapter that, or some part of it that you want to drill down into, David. Well, one thing I was going to ask, too, and we can just do that, but is which parts did we all connect to the most? 
Well, we all remembered the pessary slash diaphragm. The right? pessary slash diaphragm. Chapters two and three, right? Which were, I think chapter three was originally published as its own story, maybe with some of chapter two, and is what kind of led McCarthy, I think, to get the Guggenheim that helped her write this novel. That makes sense to me. I didn't realize that, yeah. but it reads like a short story. Yeah, it really does, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Right. And Dottie, who is the person who, because of her relationship with Dick, is going off to get this diaphragm, is both really innocent but also incredibly curious about sex, right? Yeah. In fact, I mean, that's, I th- again, the, the sense you get of it being of its time that these are women who have not been educated, you know, in this aspect of their lives, and yet they also feel free to explore it on their own. And so they're, you know, kind of butting up against their ignorance in that way. And I think with the men, what stuck out this time, you know, right away, Harold, he seems decent enough, but he's always explaining things. I mean, now we would call it mansplaining. Mm-hmm. But from the, oh, yeah, very, so right. from the very beginning, he's a little older than they are. And at the wedding, he's explaining how, you know, this thing works or that thing works or what, you know, this other thing is like. As you were saying, David, we have these different almost types, right? We have Kay as kind of the strong opinion, deeply argumentative, and in some ways, as you were saying, the center of the group. And so she's married to Harold, and she's decided that he's the genius, and she has to kind of abnegate herself to him, but then she's delighted to do it. And so she's always kind of rushing home from her job at Macy's to cook him, you know, a dinner. I was also loved the details of like how Campbell's soup is this new scientific, you know, thing that they're going to use in the kitchen, and how wonderful Campbell's soup is. But I was thinking, how can we describe this book? Because it is a book with so many different parts and and parts that work really differently in terms of their fiction, right? They're making as fiction. Those chapters we were just talking about with Dottie going off, you know, they're really like short stories. There's drama in them. Some of the other chapters are almost like little vignettes or portraiture or tableau. They, they seem a little more static, a little bit more like social criticism. But I was thinking two ways we could describe it is that this is a book about smart women who go to Vassar are kind of coming of age in this era of progress, because that's a, one of the major themes of the novel, right, is sort of science and progress. Um, they've been educated to the hilt, and they're coming off of the 20s and flappers, you know, and sort of new freedoms for women. But they sort of find themselves all in the position of listening to the men around them. And, and this is about a group of women, but it's really also about a group of men and the men in their lives. And the other thing that I think, and I'm curious what you guys think about this, that One of the things that McCarthy is most gifted at as a writer is getting at, and this is in her fiction, nonfiction too, her work as a critic, is getting at the lies we tell ourselves, really characterizing the ways that societies tell themselves lies, cultures tell themselves lies, but that especially these women have to tell themselves lies because of this kind of paradox of their education and situation. And I found that one of the really most affecting parts of the book. And I think that's part of its relevance today beyond just the sort of, you know, oh, there's men in their lives who leave them. It's the way that women tell lies to each other in groups, especially young women, and tell themselves lies in order to kind of find a sense of selfhood. Right. There's one of the less appealing but I think very strong characters in the book is Noreen, who she's not really part of the group. She's the interloper. And has this friendship with Kay, but she's also sleeping with Harold. So we're suspicious of her from the beginning. And when she arrives much later in the book after an absence, she's kind of 
taken under her wing for the afternoon one of the more innocent, kind of boring characters, Pris, who's the young mother. And she says to Pris that Vassar has ruined them both because this education they have has essentially made them unable to play the role they're now supposed to be playing. And you can feel the biting reality of that. But the fact that McCarthy puts that sentiment into the mouth of a character who is clearly not someone who's supposed to be well-liked or respected is really interesting. And also who was kind of the most intensely intellectual. You know, she was the radical of the group. And that's the other thing. This book is really, in some ways, I was like, these women are kind of more radical than we are today, right? Politically and otherwise, there's sort of very interesting to think about the 30s in relationship to the 2010s. Right. Well, they had more to complain about. They did have more (laughs) There's also a way in which I haven't quite formed this thought, so forgive me. I'm going to make an attempt anyway, which is that there's a way in which these women are each trying on different forms of womanhood in a way that's distinct from anything I think that men do. So we keep mentioning, or at least I keep mentioning movies and TV shows, but I don't know if either of you have watched the show Orphan Black, which Mm -hmm. is about a woman who's a clone. And so it's literally, you know, different versions of herself. And there's a housewife and there's a police officer. And there's a way in which, you know, these different models that they're attempting, even though each one of them is very distinct in her personality, it also feels like you're sort of exploring these different paths that sort of in theory any woman might take. You know, they all went to Vassar. They were, you know, part of this uh, singular moment and place. And then they tried these different things. And that's one of the things also about the structure of the book that is so striking now is the way that by weaving these stories together and really constructing a novel out of separate stories, McCarthy is able to explore each one of those things rather than telling one person's story and having to kind of have one person experience all of those things. Instead, she takes this group and so one of them has right. a child and you see that and you know one gets married and one does not and, and so on. And Lakey, who's the one that they all revere, and I kept thinking of her as the most beautiful of them, too. Yeah. She's the center of the group when they're the group in college, even though she's not the center of the book because she's actually absent in Europe. She turns out to be a lesbian, and that's one of the revelations of the end of the book, and they have to kind of grapple with that. But she has to go discover herself as a lesbian off in In Europe Europe. away from everyone else, right? Right, and so she's there very present at the beginning of the book, and then at the end of the book she returns. There's a lot of bookending in it. And then we have these characters like Libby. That was one of the sections that I remembered from last time because Libby wants to be in publishing, and she... (laughs) I mean, McCarthy is just a brilliant satirist, you know, and yep. and yet I think there's enough compassion. For, I mean, I think people attacked her, especially some of the women who felt themselves described in this book because she, you know, they thought there was a kind of cruelty here. And that one of the Norman Miller's complaints is that they're all so passive, which is something I was curious to talk to you guys about. But like she is, I think there's compassion, some compassion for some of the characters, but maybe but not, not Libby. for Libby. <laughs> Poor Libby, you know, those scenes of her with the publisher, like writing, she writes these reader's reports and she like, you know, talks to herself alone in her apartment and she says things like, oh, heaven. I mean, she doesn't say that, but she has this kind of like real sense of the drama of herself, you know, and she writes flowery novels, reports on, you know, really terrible novels and tragically (laughs) misinterprets a Spanish novel as a kind of critique of the Spanish Civil War when, in fact, it was, you know, the author died in 1912. And She's also the book's rape victim, and there isn't even any compassion for her, really, in that chapter because she immediately transforms the scary, upsetting 
moment into something that was completely not telling her friends that this man had proposed to her when, in fact, he just ripped her dress off and then left her there. When we're talking about those themes, right, there's rape, there's marital abuse. Harold actually beats Kay up at one point and, and she checks her into in a, a mental hospital, which, you know, happened to McCarthy herself. And um, she was apparently married to a man named Harold who spelled it with two yes, A's. was also a playwright. Does. So there's a lot of autobiography. Like Elman Wilson, I think, who was her second husband, checked her into a, a mental institution or a hospital under the guise that she was hysterical. Uh, you know, so... She said, I used real plums in an imaginary cake, was the way she described the book. And I think we feel that in terms of the social realism of these women's lives. Um, I had somehow forgotten that at the very end of the book, Kay commits suicide. At least that's how I took it. I think that's how we're meant to take it. Many of the characters seem to convince themselves that it was an accident, but that does not seem very persuasive. And... It was striking to me this reading the second time how both in the, the scenes at the hospital and then in the discussion of of her suicide that there was more ambiguity than I remembered, right? That Harold commits her and leaves but then comes back and claims that it was essentially a misunderstanding. I didn't believe that. Again, it gets back to what you were saying before, Megan, about the lies that people right. tell each other and themselves because then Kay herself kind of – convinces herself that she should just stay for a couple right. of days. Right. And then Which just, is a great example rest. of the passivity of the yes. character. Yeah. yeah. But also of that thing of like not knowing yourself and, and telling yourself lies. And because and, when I started that chapter, I had forgotten how it ended. And I thought, oh, my God, the injustice of this. Like, because he does seem like a brute who might have checked her into a mental hospital in just the way that Polly, who's who's the nurse there, right? That's right. right. Yeah. Polly was one of my favorite characters on this reread. I, she didn't make such an impression on me the first time, but she's me the one. Me too. Because she's the one who's lying to herself the least. And we're, and McCarthy kind of explicitly presents her that way. You know, she's the one who Libby kind of takes pity on because she's not married. And she doesn't really know how to put herself out there. And if you introduce her to someone who's a real catch, she'll make excuses and leave the party anxiously. But she'll always, like, end up talking to the hopeless case in the corner for hours. And she has this affair with the editor who Libby kind of horrified with her long reader reports. Anyway, I think Polly is the nurse who or the who works at the hospital and does a test on Kay. And, and Kay is telling her story to Polly. And Polly believes her. And at first I did, too. And I thought... As you were saying, you know, Kay really has been kind of put in here by Harold. And, but as you say, over the course of it, you really end up not knowing what the truth of that is. Although for me, as a, you know, 2012 feminist, the chapters about Kay are excruciating because yeah. she has her own interest and talent for the theater. She subsumes all of that for Harold's sake. She goes to work as a shop girl at Macy's. They have almost no money. And she has tremendous faith in him and puts up with him sleeping around all over the place and hitting her and being a terrible husband and provider because she wants to be living this myth. I mean, her lie to herself is gigantic and overwhelming and has to do with the fact that her family is back in Salt Lake City and wants to see her as this successful kind of New York queen. And the fact that it's all completely empty and she... I think, persuades herself to stay in the mental institution because he wants to get rid of her. That was my reading of it. It's pretty devastating. And then, of course, there's her death, which only kind of adds this coda of sense of a really wasted life of a woman who, in a different era, would have been able to realize her self-potential, one hopes. 
Yeah, I mean, she's a very specific category of women, and I, I think they do still exist, probably not as frequently as they existed in the 30s and, and in really probably up till the 70s, which is a woman who, right, as you said, subsumes her own intelligence totally, I mean, who has the kind of myth of the male genius and is devoted to the myth of the male genius and sees her role in relationship to that because she's not able to take the chances or find her own path. And I think that character still exists in the world to some degree. But now when we meet women like that, it's harder to see that they are completely at the mercy of the society around them. And that's the other thing I found heartbreaking about this book is you just felt it was so hard for them to make their way. I mean, that's the thing right. about them listening to men. They find themselves listening to men, with the exception of, of Lakey, who an interesting literary history tidbit is that when Elizabeth Bishop, who was one of Mary McCarthy's friends at Vassar, and, you know, she's one of the most famous poets of the 20th century, read the book. She thought she was Lakey and was very furious with McCarthy about it and wouldn't see her. Well, it's interesting because Lakey is not presented as having any professional aspirations or success. Right. Right. It's funny, though, that she would be upset about it because I suppose, I mean, Lakey is in some ways unsympathetic. She seems a bit cold to everyone. But otherwise, I mean, she could have come off much worse given yeah. some of the other people. Well, in this and book. she is the intellectual heart of it. She's right. the most intellectually fierce of all of them. And you, even though you don't necessarily get a sense that she's had success, you do in a way because there is that line at the end, Emily, about how she's been in Europe. She's been at Bernard Berenson's, you know, the famous art historian's house, and she's definitely living a life of culture. We don't know why, but it's it's there as a possibility that it's because she somehow is herself sort of at the height True, of culture. True, but there's no suggestion of an actual achievement. Right, that a she's a poet. Written, or, right. A painting painted, a sonnet. No, that's definitely true. The only one who has a poem published in Harper's is Libby, actually. Right, Libby, who... Dear Libby. When she, right, and poor Libby, one of the things the editor tells her in sending her off, patting her on the head to go work for a literary agent is that there are no women in publishing. Right, he actually says this is a man's game. Right. That's a kind of brutal passage to read. That was one of the moments where it really came home to me. You notice the accident of being alive, you know, the accident of my having been born in the 70s at a time when, you know, you can do the things that you and I do, Emily. Right. And Polly, too. I also really love her as a character. And she comes alive both because of her failed love affair with this editor who's in analysis. It's just a tremendously funny send up of analysis. Then she tries to take care of her crazy father who basically comes in and starts spending all their money and practically ruining her. But what saves her is marrying a doctor while she remains a medical technician. It's not a bad fate. I mean, it's much better than other things that could have happened to her, but it is not a feminist story. I think we also maybe have to talk about the politics in the book because that's one of the kind of parallels to all of them. One of the ironies, as I read it this time, is that several of them have these kind of radical revolutionary hopes or surrounded by men who do. And even Kay, who, you know, is kind of happily, you know, looking at her upholstery fabrics and planning, you know, when Harold gets fired from a job, resolves to just tell him that she's already, you know, had the couch upholstered so that he can't tell her they don't have the money to do it, which is a kind of a great scene. It's so wonderful. But they have these revolutionary aspirations, some of them, and they're all dealing with, you know, it's a political culture of socialism, communism, you know, Norman Thomas running for president. But it kind of, nothing really happens with it, right, in some way. Right. I mean, they're often making analogies between various styles of government and, you know, these parts of their own lives. So I want to say that it is Pris, actually, who Mm -hmm. talks about Roosevelt and you know, nursing. Yes. And how, right. you know, Rose- and the New Deal. And yeah. Is like, right. And how, you <laughs> right. know, be sort of being a tinkerer, sort of progressive tinkerer like Roosevelt, 
I think she says it's like uh, supplementary bottle feeding or something. Right. I mean, there's right. this sort of tortured <laughs> and analogy. she's fighting with her Republican doctor husband about this. Right. And she thinks of, I think it's a nurse she meets where she thinks, oh, she must be a Democrat. There's someone yes. she meets where she's like, she, that person must be a Democrat in the hospital in the context of like, will she be allowed to nurse or not nurse and what will happen to the baby? Great. There's a nurse who kind of is just like, we're just trying to get it all right. You know, we're just trying to make sure that the baby, because it's also about, I mean, this part actually seemed really familiar is that it comes in a different, you know, wrapping paper, but the gift is the same gift, which is this idea of science telling you how to live your life. You know, McCarthy, when she first wrote an application for Guggenheim for this book, and she was rejected the first time, sort of described it in these very abstract terms as being a novel about progress in the 30s and sort of, you know, it was very theoretical in some way in science and the kind of intersection of that and on all these characters' lives which is very much one of the parts of the book. And, and I actually appreciate that very much about it. And it kept making me think about, you know, the way we read about like brain studies and fMRIs and how, you know, we kind of, we live in a world that kind of started then where we take external quote unquote scientific information. And this is what you were getting at, Emily, when you're talking about that amazing breastfeeding chapter of childbearing. And then we take it to our own uses and say, well, this is how things are going to be because this is modernity. We know today X, Y, and Z. And uh, one thing we really and see it's only reading this novel, <laughs> that they, they thought that also in 1930s, and then they thought the other thing, and then they saw it again, and then they thought the other thing. You know? And you realize how dated and ossified and silly much of these passionate beliefs are, right? Yeah. Because they're all incomplete, and you can pick Freud or Jung or right. whichever strain of thought. It's never going to be the theory of everything. But right. one difference is that they really did still have this hope that communism might turn out to be a meaningful form of revolution. And that actually is something that hangs over this book. I was trying to think, could you write this book? To, I mean, there's not an equivalent sense of, you know, revolutionary fervor politically. I don't know. I feel like Noreen Schmidlop could be in Oh, sure. Occupy. Sure, sure, sure. But that would be the <laughs> exception, right? It's like they wouldn't all be interacting with Occupy, right, in the way that they all are interacting in some yes. ways. No, that's fair. But I I mean, she is one of my favorite parts yeah. of this book because she's so horrible. And there <laughs> is one of the chapters that I really remembered early on. One of the less vivid characters, Helena, goes to visit Noreen because Noreen has been caught kissing Harold in the kitchen by Helena. And what is wonderful about that chapter is that Noreen's apartment is painted completely black. It is filthy. Right. And Helena's recipe for how Noreen should improve her life is entirely about decorating and cleaning the toilet. And it's and so her shallow and yeah. so correct. Every sec, everything she says, you think to yourself, yes, that's insane. And there's a way in which McCarthy is able to stick to the surfaces and use design and object and household choices to get at these much deeper issues. And it, it makes, makes me admit to myself how much we do invest our identities in these choices we make and how much we judge other people when they make other choices. Yeah. You know, I was thinking a, a similar period, you know, this I think this book does feel at odds with today in, in the way I was just describing, but like it wouldn't feel at odds with the late 60s or early 70s when there was that similar kind of doctrinaire, you know, in some ways revolutionary fervor. There were way, you know, thinking about Noreen's apartment, it's like there were certain ways your apartment could look if you were a hippie in the 70s or certain things, you know, you couldn't do because then you would be a square, right? In the way that Noreen is like, you know, kind of rebuffs uh, Helena is just like all, says to her basically all these things are, she seems to be giving way to it. And like, it's like, yes, I do need to clean the dirt off my neck. And then she's like, no, this <laughs> Thank is you shallow. For it out. <laughs> you know? <laughs> all right. So we should talk a bit about 
McCarthy's style. And I, I mentioned, you know, how funny I found it to be. Basically, each of the chapters is close third person. Is that seem accurate that she kind of is inhabiting the perspectives of each of these characters in a way that has become such a dominant form of the American novel. Maybe you want to go back and see how common it was in the early 60s, because nowadays this is sort of so often how it's done. And there's a lot of room for irony and wit in those moments, because the characters uh, are often in a way being funnier than they realize. So for instance, when Polly is, is thinking about Gus's analysis and, you know, wondering, wait, you know, what's his precise diagnosis? And, you know, it's presented sort of deadpan, but it's all all very funny. Similarly, later when she's talking about her father and her father's behavior, for her, it has a certain seriousness. She has to live with this man. But it it all comes off as, as quite funny, I think. So, for instance, she's talking about his politics. She says, it struck her that becoming a Trotskyite had merely given him one more thing to be snobbish about. He now looked down his nose at Stalinists, progressives, and New Dealers, as well as on the middle class and the moneyed elements whom he had always derided. Some of his worst prejudices, she told him, scolding, were being reinforced by his new adherents. For example, coming from Massachusetts, he had a plaintive aversion to the Irish, and he was elated to hear that Marx had called the Irish the bribed tools of imperialism. Look at that bribed tool of imperialism, he would whisper, of the poor policeman on the beat. And maybe it's just coming from Massachusetts myself, but I just found that very funny and clever as a way of sending up, you know, so her father, they, her family had had money, they lost it in the Depression. He's appears to be losing his mind, but he has grabbed hold of these politics that we were talking about, and yet through them he somehow manages to express all of his old prejudices and bigotries. And there are all these moments in the novel, I think, where McCarthy is able to do all of those sorts of things at once. You know, that's so funny, David, because I wanted to call out a similar kind of ethnic stereotyping. And there's something slightly offensive about these social distinctions that McCarthy is making. Some of it really does seem to be her speaking. I don't know. Maybe that's unfair. But I felt that way. And I think that part of what's happening is, you know, we are still somewhat attuned to social differences, but we basically live in kind of messed up or great melting pot of a world in which we just don't really pay attention to all these things anymore. You can be from anywhere. I don't want to paint some picture of total meritocracy, but it's not as stifling as it was then. And I just loved this passage in the end of the book when Noreen meets Pris in the park. She's just married a guy who's Jewish. And she says, my husband's a Jew, Noreen threw out. His people changed the name from Rosenberg. Do you mind Jews? I'm mad for them myself. <laughs> like, like in that moment, it seems McCarthy is far from Noreen. But there are some parts of that passage that I put my antennae up a little bit. But I think what you're saying, Emily, is so true, which is one thing I would say seemed very different about, you know, we we're talking about similarities and differences between the times, right, and, and things that carry through to today. But the obsession with class is yes. just very, very different. And the, the con, I mean, maybe within a certain narrow band of people who go to schools like Yale or Harvard, you know, and come from private schools in the East Coast, there is some of this constant marking. A little bit, marking. but didn't you feel like, Megan, that was sort of a parody of itself by the time we were in college? A parody, or it was just much more fluid. Those people did have these groups and kind of circulate, but then they were also friends with people who didn't come from those backgrounds, and not in a way where they were constantly like, oh, and her people 
you right. know, had no money. You know, and the, there's so much awareness of, you know, what everyone's stature is. And, and some of that is McCarthy's obsessions. She felt like a lifelong outsider. You know, she was um, – her parents died in 1918 in the flu, and she was raised by a great aunt and uncle who were abusive, and she was Catholic and, you know, felt very much, I think, like an outsider in that moneyed kind of wasp world of, you know, the social register and so on and so forth. But it's really different, isn't it? I mean, it almost felt like oh, – I've been reading Proust, and – so much of, um, you know, Remembrance of Things Past is about these very fine social distinctions in Paris. It's at a higher level. But I was thinking at the time reading it, oh, we don't have that. But then this novel is that. You know? It is. But then at the same time, because it's the Depression, right. it sort of brings them all down right. in a way right. that uh, right. I think probably has, you know, helped the novel yeah. going forward. Although at the same time, it's probably partly why it was the story McCarthy wanted to tell in the 60s. But so Pokey, who we haven't mentioned. Oh, yeah. Pokey Prothero. Um, Pokey Prothero, <laughs> who is from, you know, one of the the wealthiest families. We haven't mentioned her because she's a total nothing character except that she's really rich. Right, and exactly. And rides horses and flies planes. Yeah. She's, <laughs> I liked that part. <laughs> and she, at one point she go, takes a helicopter is. into the city yeah. to get back from Cornell. <laughs> but, I mean, I think it's not it's not a coincidence that McCarthy makes her such a minor character. And likewise, Lakey, who seems to be you know, more financially secure than the rest of them. She plays an important role in the book, but you only actually see her really at the beginning and at the very end. Right. And it's interesting. McCarthy is unsparing about the brittle wasp culture, but she's also unsparing about some of the people who are scrabbling to make their way in, like Noreen, and I think like the Jews to the extent that they're depicted in the book. Even Kay. And Kay, right, who stands for kind of the West and this different part of the country where she's not to the manor born and is trying to sort of aspire to being part of this New York elite social aid world. Can I read a little passage? Because so much of this book is conversation and then thinking, and it sort of combines. You know, you can really tell that that McCarthy was a cultural critic as well as a novelist. But I'm thinking of this part in page 81. It's Kay and Dottie are talking about cooking. I think it also explains some of the adverse reaction to the book by men, you know, because this is a really – the book is so explicitly concerned with the realm of the domestic and the female as these women are relegated to it, right? But also kind of – interested in it and care about it, even though they also have these highly trained intellectual minds. So I think this is Kay talking, right? And she says, I love the Tribune. She said, Harold converted me from the Times. The Tribune's typography has it all over the Times, as observed Harold. How lucky you are, Kay, Dottie said warmly, to have found a husband who's interested in cooking and who's not afraid of experiment. Most men, you know, have awfully set tastes, like Daddy, who won't hear of made dishes except the good old beans on Saturday. There was a twinkle in her eye, but she really did mean it that Kay was awfully lucky. Kay leaned forward. You ought to get your cook to try the new way of fixing canned beans. You just add ketchup and mustard and Worcestershire sauce and sprinkle them with plenty of brown sugar, cover them with bacon, and put them in the oven in a Pyrex dish. It sounds terribly good, said Dottie, but Daddy would die. Harold nodded. He began to talk, very learnedly, about the prejudice that existed in conservative circles against canned goods. It went back, he said, to an old fear of poisoning that derived from home canning, where spoilage was common. Modern machinery and factory processes, of course, had eliminated all danger of bacteria, and yet the prejudice lingered, which was a pity, since many canned products, like vegetables picked at their peak, 
and some of the Campbell soups were better than anything the home cook could achieve. Have you tasted the new corn niblets? asked Kay. Dottie shook her head. You ought to tell your mother about them. It's the whole kernel corn. Delicious. Almost like corn on the cob. Harold discovered them. You know, and I just <laughs> love that. You got it all in, there, in the Campbell soup, the mansplaining. <laughs> exactly. I know, it's all there. Right? I mean, it's just like all in that one thing. And I love that she goes on to say, like, you'll never want to see the old. She goes, does your mother know iceberg about iceberg lettuce? lettuce? It's a new variety. Very crisp with wonderful keeping grasses. You'll never see the old Boston lettuce again. Anyway, I just feel like that passage kind of epitomizes what McCarthy is able to do with really establishing the difference in the characters and then kind of the way all these characters interact and the way the thinking of the time worked too, right? Which is to go straight so to Megan, modern machinery. Does, and Does McCarthy get away with the form of light chiclet in passages like that, that if she were writing now, she would be kind of, you know, confined to the realm of Jennifer Weiner and in the kind of yeah. fight and, you know, other real, quote, real male novelists would be looking to... I mean, I think the answer is no, because this is such a rich and evocative book. But when you read passages like that, which, of course, people really do have dinner party conversations like that all the time. All the time. About, yeah. Right? All the time. And yet... It written on the page, it seems so frivolous. Right, right, right. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, in because I actually was just reading the the New Yorker profile about Jennifer Weiner, and mm-hmm. I was thinking though that you know, think about the reception that Adele Waldman got for the Love Affairs of Nathaniel P, which. I think doesn't quite have the heft. I've been, you know, it's a wonderful book, but isn't trying to be as capacious socially quite as this book is. I mean, it's trying to tell a whole story of a generation. So there's sort of apples and oranges, but that book is a very literary, I think was seen as a literary book. And I think McCarthy, especially because of her stature as an intellectual um, and her criticism, I think, yeah, it would be considered. um, And it sort of has like the Emperor's Children, the Claire Massoud book about 9-11, right? Right. And sort of has these moments that seem kind of almost frivolous, but that's part of the sort of explicit point of it. Um, Right. I mean, insofar as that sort of categorization revolves around characters who seem very, quote, relatable, unquote, and sympathetic, you know, McCarthy does not make it easy on the reader in that respect. All of these characters can be difficult to like at times. They all do some terrible things. and They're all very specific in their characterization. And romance and does no not go well, right? I mean, right. love affairs, not, not that they always do in, in commercial, what we call chiclet, but it really kind of really showing the seamy underside of these things. You know, you can see where girls got some of its aspirations from this, right? Because, you know, you read the scene of Dottie going, I think one of the reasons we remember her going to get the birth control is, first of all, it is foreign, right? She's very nervous about legality and that the doctor will tell and all this stuff whether her name will show up in a news, if the offices get raided and her name might show up in the newspaper as having gotten, you know, a diaphragm, not a Which concern. Which family People would today, never to ha- Right, exactly. Very different. But on the other hand, that sense of you're in this murky territory and no one's really told you what sex entails and mysteries of the female body. Like, I think all of that women, I think probably when I read it, I could relate to, right, on some, yes. on some level. And I think, and, and sort of the abstract cruelty of Dick and, all of that we see in really different forms in girls, right? And and I think there is still the sense of the kind of shrouded mysteries of what it's like to be a young woman. Right. There's even that scene uh, in the first season of Girls in which they go to Planned Parenthood, I think right. it is. Right. And, yeah. you know, it's an abortion. So it's the topic that maybe now is is still sort of more fraught in a way that, say, birth right. control isn't for most people. But it has many of those same things kind of swirling around them. Right. And the sense of female embarrassment, too, I think she's really good at. And the Dottie's embarrassment that she went and got this thing the day after Dick told her to do it. I mean, she basically runs out to get it. And then he's not home. You know, she calls him because she can't dare bring it back 
She can't bring it into the Vassar Club where she's staying because that would somehow desecrate. Right? Isn't she staying Even at the Vassar Club? Even though it's like a package. Right. Right. But she so she waits imagine. in Washington Square for Dick to be home. And of course, he's not home. And then she just for feels hours. like this fool and this embarrassment. And I think there is still this kind of embarrassment, shame, you know, about the body and sexual desire. All that stuff is still present in these really I kept thinking about ways. that Amy Schumer skit where she goes to the health clinic and they're like hey oh, seven yeah. years ago there was a diagnosis for an std are you that same amy schumer <laughs> god i haven't seen that one but she's amazing so is there anything else from this book that uh, we haven't touched on that you guys were struck by well i just felt again reading it that it's almost like reading the architectural plans for so many cultural icons that have followed in its wake that are wrestling with this same period of life. I mean, I was thinking about that movie Francis Ha that mm. just came out this year, which I really liked. I feel like once you read this book, it's like you have the key to unlocking the antecedents to a lot of these touchstones and to thinking about, you know, our own social relations and how they're different or how people are basically repeating the same patterns in their own ways. I mean, it's a book about the kinds of lives that upper middle class or middle class people in their 20s and 30s live in cities, right? Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, if you're someone who left college and moved to a big city, this book is going to speak to you, I think. Yeah, there's also – I'll go ahead, Emily. Well, I was just going to ask you that I loved that you really wanted to talk about this book, and I wonder if you feel like – most men are a little more leery of it if there's a way in which it felt like a window into kind of a more female sensibility or whether you think that's just a silly set of distinctions to be making. I saw a bunch of my friends actually last night and mentioned that we were doing this. A couple of them were familiar with the book, but it wasn't clear to me if they had read it. And I don't think I've ever actually had a like a, a long conversation of any kind with a male friend who has read the book. I loved it right away. I mean, when I read it 10 years ago, I just enjoyed it immensely. Yeah. And I I hope that has come through in our conversation. Oh, no, that it's just an extremely enjoyable book. But I think it's less that it's a window into uh, these lives that are so different so much as I really enjoy stories about friendships evolving over time. Mm -hmm. And to bring in yet one more movie, and this is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but one of my favorite series of movies is the Seven Up series mm -hmm. where you see lives you see these snapshots and you get the class background you get the educational background of these people and see how their experiences and personalities shape you know the trajectories of their lives and i think this book does that partly mm -hmm. through its structure because there are these eight characters and the chapters do move from one to the other and so then there'll be a a little note dropped in one of the later chapters that you know so and so has gotten married or you know, towards the end, even that, you know, this person has died, which you didn't necessarily see coming. I think there's something so affecting about that. And I think stories like this about men, insofar as they exist, tend to um, be a little narrower. Hmm. It's a group hmm. of men who are brought together for some purpose. Right. I can't like actually... Like subtle bodies. A like, yeah. a, like the funeral of the one friend or the big chill. Or the big chill. Like, right. right. Both. I can't actually think... Probably exists. I just can't think of one, but I can't well, think of... you know, as you were talking, you were making me think a sketchy thought, or an unsketched... Whatever I'm trying to say, you guys understand. <laughs> I was thinking about um, Philip Roth and John Updike writing these books that are about one man over time. So they're doing some of what this book does, but it's through the lens of kind of like one 
man's life and how it inter- you know intersects with all these other people, how what fam- you know happens when your family and work changes and so on and so forth. So that's really the case with Updike. And then with Roth, you have this figure who kind of recurs in different situations. And how different, it, you know, is there something about a female writer that leads her to really chart the interactions with friendships in this more kind of group way? Right. Um, well, and my suspicion is that it's not just literary, that right. actually it's about the way men and women tend to live. And so here, you know, bringing my own experience, I just think that men don't seem to be as good for whatever reason at forming these kinds of group relationships mm-hmm. and sustaining them over time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know to what extent that bears out sociologically, but that's mm-hmm. my own experience and it's certainly what you see, I think, in that's books. Right. right, and it helps explain why writers like Roth and Updike both don't portray women characters often in all their three-dimensionality, at least in my view, and also why someone like Mailer would have respected some aspects of this book but also basically hated it Mm -hmm. because it's just not his way of looking at the world and he wasn't someone who thought that it was his duty to go try on someone else's lens. Yeah, he did. He thought there needed to be more, you know, extremity. And although he did yeah, like, he, he did like that Dottie had an orgasm her first time, as you might expect. He would like <laughs> well, Which I actually is jealous. really interesting. I know you're kind of like, wow. Um, you know, one thing that's interesting, I just want to note is that I was reading that in a 1989 newspaper interview, McCarthy, before her died, said that the group had pretty much ruined her life because so many people had this negative, you know, so many of the women in her kind of social who had gone to Vassar thought it was about them and were angry at oh. her. And then there was so much debate about the book. And I haven't gone back to read it. I wanted to, I didn't have time to read more of the contemporaneous reviews, both because there were a lot of very, very positive ones. And, you know, it went to the best, it was a bestseller and it made her a lot of money. It made her wealthy. You know, she sold the movie rights. It became a movie, which I also was hoping to see. And I have, have other of you I seen the movie? Seen I'm going to try to no, see it this weekend. I haven't even heard of that movie. I had was an unfortunate ER trip last night or I would have seen it. Not for me, but I don't think it's supposed to be very good, but I'm still curious yeah. to see it. I, it should be a TV show, really. It should be a TV yeah, show, yeah. right? It should be a TV Someone show. Someone should still make that show. Yeah. Yeah. HBO and Showtime, are you listening? <laughs> That's interesting, though, because I, my sense even now, and maybe I'm wrong about this, is that its its literary reputation, it's still a little underrated. Yeah, I think I simply think so as too. a novel, yeah. it's really good. And, you know, I, I was thinking about why that is, and I think formally it is that, you know, one reason that Pessary chapter sticks out is that it has more natural drama. It's written more in the way a conventional piece of fiction is written. There's two characters, there's drama, she's waiting, something happens. A lot of the other chapters really are like as i was saying before tableau i mean they're they're more static there's more kind of cultural criticism at play not that much happens except for the poly chapters except for the poly chapters which have that drama also but a lot of them really are narration not action um and and kind of explication almost like libby you know nothing really happens in libby except that the guy's like actually you're you know kind of tells us what we know at the beginning which is like she's not really set right well in the chapter about hatton the butler Really kind of yeah. goes on a little longer. Yeah, that than chapter it needs I was to. thought that really just why she thought she needed to do it, but it, it just didn't. Uh, but so I think that that's part of it is that it, it doesn't really register as conventional fiction in a lot of ways, and she makes this departure. And so I think Dwight McDonald had said, you know, she tries to pull it off and she can't. And I see why people said that. And and there is there were moments where I was craving a little more of that kind of conventional action, but. I also think, as you say, by the time I got to the end of it, I thought, no, this book really does something that, that not a lot of books do. And that kind of brand of wit that gets established 
it's kind of hard to quote any of it, but it gets established slowly, right? I also think the book ending, both the wedding right. and the funeral, the right. beginning and end chapters, to me were very successful and powerful and did move yes. and make you feel very caught up in yeah. these people's lives and fates and what had happened to them. No, and that's what happens. I think when we got to Kay being in the mental institution and in the end, I thought, okay, no, this book, it really has a shape that I think works. And, and I agree with you right. that it's, it's somewhat underrated, even though it's, it is considered a classic, but it it doesn't maybe enjoy. It's almost considered well, a popular classic. I don't think it's part of the canon, right? People right. don't teach this book that much, do they, in English literature classes? I don't know, but I think they should. Right, I agree. Well, on that note, if you've listened this far, you probably have read it, but certainly if you haven't, you should. And uh, we hope that you enjoyed our conversation. Before we go, let me tell you once again about the live audiobook club, which is happening February 27th in Seattle, and which also will be our next podcast. Um, so our next audiobook club selection is Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five. Dan Coyce and Hannah Rosen will discuss it live with Hugh Howie. And if you want to get tickets, go to slate.com slash seattleabc. Again, that's slate.com slash seattleabc. And if you can't be in Seattle, you can download the podcast when it goes live the first week in March. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the audiobook club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. And please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Emily Bazelon and Megan O'Rourke, I'm David Hackman. Thanks for listening.